Whether you're an entrepreneur, event planner, political organizer, video producer, cattle farmer, fashion designer, architect, real estate agent, or magazine editor, Airtable can help you create your way. Learn more and get a special offer for the Founders Project listeners at Airtable.com slash Founders Project. Welcome to Inks, the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. This week, meet Brian Chen, co-founder and CEO of Room, the startup that is reimagining the modern workplace. After working in big, wide-open spaces, Brian and his co-founder came up with their first product, a soundproof privacy pod that is sustainable, affordable, and easy to assemble. This is not Brian's first startup experience, but Room has taken off, hitting a 40 million revenue run rate less than a year post-launch. We're so excited to have Brian. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Um, Brian, start from the beginning. Just tell us uh, your own narrative of how you ended up here building a company that I have seen in every office place that I've walked into. Uh, Tell me how you got here. Well, it definitely starts with the personal pain point. Anybody who's worked in an open floor plan is familiar with this. You know, you take private phone calls in uncomfortable places. You go uh, into the streets of New York to take important phone calls because you need the privacy and it's terrible or in hallways. Actually, at my last startup, I spent uh, seven months living in Hong Kong, working on manufacturing in China and things like that. And I was in a long distance relationship. So I would take these phone calls with my girlfriend at the time, my fiance now, and I would take them uh, in the stairwell. And it was just so uncomfortable. And it really kind of increased my stress level at work, right? Because absolutely, uh, you can't get away. So it starts with a personal pain point, but the truth about Room is that uh, the idea was def- was not mine. After I left my last startup, uh, two founders who I was friends with, uh, they're both from Y Combinator, they approached me with an idea and they had been growing their businesses from tens of employees to hundreds to thousands. And uh, so it's Ryan Peterson from Flexport and Henrik Zilmer from AirHelp. And they said, hey, we have this problem with employees making phone calls and we think there's a business to be had. Because I had that personal pain point, I was intrigued. But it was really the process, uh, there was a little bit of a process of discovery uh, that took place over a few months uh, until I gained the conviction to say, you know what, I'm all in. I think that this is a real business and I want to do it and pour you know, all my entire life uh, and soul into it. And that process was, I realized, not just that there was a gap in the market, but a phone booth has a lot of unique characteristics. One, it lets companies do more with less. So you can actually, uh, with existing square footage, get a lot more productivity. Two, it actually has a really material and meaningful impact on health and wellness for employees. When you don't have to listen to your colleague talk to the dentist or uh, when you can get away for that moment of peace and quiet and talk to, um, you know, have that private conversation, it has a, a big impact on health and wellness. And finally, I realized it's a product that where the alternative is construction, so it replaces that whole process of going to a general contractor, talking to the landlord, getting a building permit, and it's much more flexible. And we live in a world that demands flexibility. So 
it's unlike any other product really that you'll find in the office and I became fascinated by it and really passionate about this idea that we could with a very simple beginning start reimagining the modern workplace and that's why we call it room um, not because it's a soundproof phone booth but because we're on a mission to make room for people in the office and make room for better workplace environments. I love it. The number of times that I have needed a room, I think I could even handle a room in my house, actually, to be perfectly honest, because I have little kids. Um, so tell us just like the the practical logistics. When did you launch? How did you fundraise? How did you get up and running? Where are you in kind of your execution history? Yeah. So Ryan and um, Henrik really believed in the idea, and they were willing to become not only the first uh, customers, but the first investors. So, uh, And they introduced me to my co-founder, Morton, who brings a very complementary skill set to my own. So we started in 2017, uh, Morton and I, where he is much more on the creative brand product innovation side of the business, and I'm much more on the finance operational side of the business. And we got together, we went through this, a similar discovery process and realized that there was an enormous opportunity in front of us. And uh, that's when we, we decided to call the company Room. We went through some early prototyping and product development in 2017, and then made our first sale of a essentially um, a beta version of the product in January of 2018, and officially launched Room in May of 2018. So we moved pretty quickly. And when we first launched our product, we were just two people, uh, and wow. we were delivering and assembling the product <laughs> wow. ourselves. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> and in May, by May, when we launched Room as a brand uh, with a, you know an actual website, we were five people. Today, just about 12, 13 months later, we are 31, uh, with six or seven people joining in, in the next two weeks. So we're growing very, very quickly. We've sold thousands of booths. We have uh, 1,500 unique businesses that we count as customers. And yeah, I mean, it's just it's just been uh, taking off. A wild ride. Wait, so um, walk us through a little bit of, you know, two people, you're assembling your own rooms. Help people understand uh, quickly, what kind of companies started buying rooms? Originally, because you know, my last startup was um, backed by Y Combinator, so we were very much part of that startup community. Originally, we designed the product and the experience for startups, but when we were validating demand for the product and uh, trying to understand our customers, one of the more surprising things that we learned was that demand was coming from everywhere. So when we had literally just a landing page up there and we started testing some ads and some messaging, uh, we had a facilities manager from Microsoft give us his contact information and said, hey, I want to learn more. So from a very early stage, we started seeing that this is a problem that is incredibly widespread and that uh, affects companies of all sizes. I, I, I was not kidding when I said I actually could use a room in my house <laughs> um, because sometimes you just need the ability to close your door and get something done. Uh, and I don't even know that it you know is always just for a phone call. So what have you learned now that you've been really up and running a year and two months, right? It sounds mm-hmm. like roughly a year and three months or so. What have you learned that surprised you about uh, room sales? And also kind of walk people through how you're charging for rooms. So people who are listening who maybe don't totally understand the business model, uh, how does that work? Yeah. 
uh, Morton and I, you know, my co-founder and I, we don't come from the world of commercial interiors or, or furniture. So we didn't make a lot of assumptions that people from the industry would, right? And uh, we decided to take an approach to the industry that's much more modeled after consumer products because that's a lot of what our background had been in. So we sell our product via our website. It sells for $34.95 with free shipping included. It ships flat in four boxes and assembles on site. And it's really designed to be as seamless of a purchase experience as possible. And basically what we've done is try to take that really consumer-like approach where it's as easy as buying a Casper mattress or Warby Parker glasses or whatever else that you can buy online. And we've done that and given that opportunity for business people to make that have that same experience. So just a question for those of us who maybe don't always make physical things. How does ease of assembly impact your design and manufacturing process. You know, how did you have to think about the fact that it's being shipped to, uh, you know, let's say an inspired capital and we need to put three of them together? How did that impact how you guys thought about designing a room? It was a critical factor in from the very, very earliest stages. Because we knew that it was a product that had to ship flat and assemble on site, we had to design it such that it could fit into freight elevators and go upstairs. Uh, we needed to design it so that lay people could assemble it themselves without He's talking hiring. about me. How, how does an Alexa Von Tobel put yeah. together a room? <laughs> exactly. We, because we originally started... Without getting in a fight with her husband. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we well, you know, started with the, the startup in mind, we wanted it to be as easy as... So that you could do it, right? Yeah. And it was definitely an iterative approach. And we send a lot of boxes. There was lots of damage in transit before we got it right. Uh, there were freight elevators that were that didn't accommodate our product for a while until until we really kind of got it right. But from a very early stage, we knew that it was not just about thinking about assembly, but how do you deliver this product to the right place in your office? And that's not a trivial problem because the, the product is a structure that ships flat in four boxes, but weighs 450 pounds. Wow, oh my goodness. So one of the things that you guys have thought about is taking a direct-to-consumer approach, but to a B2B business. Talk us a little bit about what that means to you. It means that, you know, for inspiration, when we're looking at brands, uh, we're looking at consumer brands. We're not looking at enterprise brands, right? So one of the gaps that we saw early on was, if you think about brands that are known for fun, productive, creative workplace environment, you know, I struggled to think of what comes to mind. So that was a gap that we wanted to fill. And so the brand is a, is a big piece of it, but then the other piece of it is ease of purchase, right? So our product is something that an office manager can buy with the swipe of a credit card or by entering, you know, entering into our shopping cart. There doesn't have to be a complicated quoting process or invoicing process. It can literally be just like buying something from from Amazon. And all of these companies have trained people to expect that level of convenience and ease. And so that's what we've aspired towards. As you've been leaning into that, what's the biggest learning experience or the biggest aha moment that you've had in really crafting that to make sure that your customers love you? Clearly they do, right? As you said, you're now in, uh, you've sold thousands of these units in such a short period of time there's such a zeitgeist, something is working. What would you say is the one or two things that's making that happen? I think it's the the ease of purchase, right? And when, when we think about the values that drive us and the values behind the company, 
it's about putting people first and keeping people in mind across all business decisions. And so the realization for us is that even if we're selling to a Fortune 500 company, it's a person at the other end of the the transaction who is making the decision. And so making it as easy as, as that swipe of a credit card for that person is incredibly powerful. And for a Fortune 500 company, what we've seen is that our sales process is actually mimics, in a lot of ways, some of the very consumer-like enterprise software companies that are taking off, you know, companies like Slack or Dropbox or Asana, where there's a very low bar to entry to get the software running, and it's adopted at local early stage teams before going up the procurement chain and requiring a um, you know C-level decision maker. So we're seeing very similar patterns where people in local offices without having to consult with the CFO are saying, we need to solve this problem because it's urgent and we can do it with this company room with the swipe of a credit card and $34.95, more or less the cost of a high-end laptop. And they can solve a huge problem you know, with the click of a, of a mouse button. Which is amazing. Um, one of the things that you guys made as part of the pillar uh, of kind of your value system is sustainability. Talk us through a little bit of not only what that actually means in terms of when somebody buys a room unit, you know, what's sustainable about it, but then also uh, about kind of your, your vision for the future around sustainability. Each room phone booth uh, is comprised of over a thousand recycled plastic bottles. Uh, we use recycled plastic bottles to basically soundproof the phone booth and to make it so that there's less echo inside. And it's a critical part of how we achieve uh, the performance of, of the product, right? I believe that climate change is very clearly one of the biggest challenges of our generation. So it is a must when it comes to building a company today, um, a moral must. but. Going back to what we were just talking about in terms of building a kind of taking a consumer approach and building a consumer company, I think it's more important today than ever that a company operates in a way that it can be proud of because consumers care about that and businesses care about that. So for us, sustainability is part of a larger mission to behave and act in a responsible way as a company. And that applies to sustainability. It applies to how we treat our own employees. It applies to all of the people who are involved in our supply chain, from the people putting our product together and assembling in the factory to the logistics partners that we have who are carrying these heavy boxes. We, you know, we really care about those people. And I think that every company needs to start building that reputation for being responsible citizens of the world. Otherwise, you know, their businesses will suffer. And with that, we'll be right back after this. In the 1990s, an engineer and avid bird watcher named Eiji Nakatsu was fascinated by the way the kingfisher could dive into the water without making a splash. He later designed a new high-speed train for Japan Railway West based on the shape of the kingfisher's beak, which broke world speed records while reducing noise and energy consumption. This creative breakthrough is brought to you by Airtable. Learn more and get a special offer for Founders Project listeners at airtable.com forward slash Founders Project. I want to shift gears and just talk a little bit about, so you didn't come from manufacturing, like you, you know, didn't go to architecture school or how to design furniture. Um, You truly just tackled this with a totally clean beginner's mindset. You know, what do you think gave you an edge in doing that? Sash, what helped you kind of tackle that? I mean, did you actually just like draw this on a piece of paper and then call up 
somebody and say, hey, can you help me build this? I mean, walk me through the logistics of you figuring out how to build a room. Well, I've benefited from a little bit of, ex- of experience where this is not the first physical product company that I've started. And I have some battle scars to show for it. You know, my last company was called Blue Smart, and we made smart luggage. So we had to go through that whole manufacturing process. And I learned a, a lot of different things from that experience I've taken with me to Room. You know, I, just to run through a few things, you know, one is getting the price right is so important from the very, very beginning. We did a lot of research at Room to figure out what is the right price to sell a customer. And then we worked backwards to what is the right cost for us to make this. And if you do it the other way around, that can... Uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> Punchline, doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. And then, you know, the, the other thing about, you know, taking that physical product to market is five or six years ago, the, the craze and the kind of validated path to market was through crowdfunding, where if you were a hardware startup, you would throw up a campaign, generate a bunch of demand, and then start manufacturing. And I saw firsthand how that can hurt a company, actually, because it's very different to sell an idea through a crowdfunding campaign than it is to sell a product that solves an actual need. So with Room, we started and took a very different approach where we had a very flexible supply chain to start. And we took a very iterative kind of tech, digital-oriented approach to product development where uh, we tested and we iterated and we did it in a very fast clo- you know, cycles. I love it. I do think there's something about having a beginner's mindset. It just gives you the ability to, to think outside the box. So I want to shift gears. So clearly, Room is absolutely killing it. And if you're out there listening and you're running a startup, you should actually just run to the website and, and think about whether or not that would make uh, your employees happier, because it will. And as somebody who it gets very easily distracted by other people's conversations, quiet is a, <laughs> is a true joy in my life, if I can have it. So amazing work there. So let's shift over to you. So this, as you said, this isn't your first startup. Startup and you dropped out of business school just like me. Mm-hmm. Um, first, when did you drop out of business school? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I was at uh, MIT Sloan School of Management. And while I was applying to business school, I had helped start this company, Blue Smart. And in my first semester of business school, uh, we'd launched this crowdfunding campaign and it got, you know, couple million dollars of pre-orders and tens of thousands of people who said that they wanted our product. And and then we got accepted into Y Combinator. So for me, you know, I had the opportunity to either stay an additional year and a half to finish business school or to, to dive full time into the startup. And uh, it was a no brainer for me. You know, there's no better way to learn how to do what I wanted to do than to just do it. I'm high-fiving Brian in the studio because we both made it only one semester. I'm officially an alumni now. Uh, <laughs> so I always joke, it was like the biggest financial decision of, uh, for one semester, I get to be an alumni, uh, which is a, a good financial it's a good hack. It's a good hack. <laughs> totally. So um, what drives you as a builder? Like, what makes you love entrepreneurship? I often tell people that, you know, I, I've wanted to be an entrepreneur since before I knew how to spell the word. And when I think back on why that is... You know, I spent half of my childhood in Taiwan, and for me, the story of Taiwan was always a story of entrepreneurship, of how uh, these entrepreneurs took what was a d- very much a developing country and brought it into the first world uh, through their ingenuity and technological innovation. So for me, I grew up in a world where the entrepreneurs were the heroes, right? And it's just always, without knowing really what it meant, they were the heroes, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. 
It's so funny you say that. I've actually never heard anybody else say exactly how I feel about my own. I grew up and I always said I didn't think pop stars or movie stars were the coolest. I was always really fascinated by the people who built companies. And I like worshiped them as though they should, you know, truly be, you know, superheroes. And yeah. um, and then I, I never knew that that was what it was to really be kind of an entrepreneur. And the fact that I was more interested in understanding what made those people tick. And anyways, uh, you're uh, the only other person that <laughs> I've ever heard say that, which means we're totally crazy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, clearly you're an entrepreneur. What would you say you know, if you have to step back and think about your vision for room, the big vision, not just the pods, not just the fact, what is it? If you like scale backwards and you look forward 10 years, what is your vision for the company that you want to build? Well, I find it crazy that over 70% of Americans work in an open floor plan and nobody likes that open floor plan, right? And over half of uh, American employees have brought up noise as a complaint to their bosses. That to me is crazy. And it signifies that building a great workplace environment is really hard today. And I come from this uh, belief that it shouldn't be. And what we're trying to do at Room is make it a lot easier than it currently is to build, design, deploy a great workplace environment, uh, to have a floor plan that accommodates very different types of activities and will accommodate the needs of the people in the office. Somehow the industry, as it was constructed, forgot about the people in the office. And so when we think about the big picture vision beyond phone booths and pods, it is to make it really, really easy for that workplace environment to pop up overnight. And to not require 12 week lead time like it you know like it does to order a chair you know and there are all sorts of, of problems that are a lot more difficult to solve than they need to be I love it I, I really do think that our attention span is getting smaller and smaller by the minute with everything that's distracting us and quiet and concentration and focus mm-hmm. um, is really what you're selling in so many ways. Well, and and recruiting and uh, retention, right? Because we live in a world where people can have outsized impact and they have so much leverage in terms of uh, the impact that, they, that individuals can have. So their ability for a company to create a great workplace environment to keep those people and attract those people, that is just crazy valuable. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So let's shift to, to you. So you are currently on a rocket ship. You are deeply working. Uh, probably haven't slept much in uh, 13, 14 months. It sounds like you also just got engaged. You have a fiance. So yes. congratulations. Thank you. How are you making it work for you? Kind of what's your personal operating system that, that's keeping uh, the Brian train on the tracks? Or, or not. You, the train may be off the tracks. That's okay, too. <laughs> yeah. Like with any entrepreneur, I think maintaining... Um, certain amount of balance is really important, making sure that you have a healthy diet and that you are making time to exercise. That's definitely important. But when I think about what gets me out of bed in the morning, right, and why I keep going, I I think a lot about designing virtuous cycles in my life and creating positive feedback loops. So Room has a mission that I truly believe in, uh, making room for people in the office. Because of that vision, and you know, because of that mission, we've been able to attract really wonderful, great people who are smart and passionate and dedicated. 
and we're working on really interesting problems and pumping out really great products, right? So the, all of those things end up being a little bit of a virtuous cycle that I just find tremendously motivating. And I try to find that same kind of dynamic, that those po- positive feedback loops in all the different dimensions of my life. What's the like one or two things that just are required for you to keep functioning? Sleep is definitely important. For me, exercise is incredibly important. Uh, I like to go running. And then for me, it's really important that I carve out time for myself to be, I'm, I identify as an introvert. And it's important that I get that alone time to recharge uh, and to read. I love reading. I actually studied English literature in college. So uh, the ability f- for me to find time to do that definitely keeps me going meeting you, you do not at all seem like an introvert, but it is very fitting that an introvert has created a business <laughs> where you have a room to be by yourself for a moment, <laughs> um, which yeah. I think that's like the definition of uh, uh, founder market fit. So when uh, what else in your life like do you kind of swear by right now? Are there any products, services, one or two things that are just like your go-tos for yourself? I mean, anything, like what are the just kind of things you're swearing by? Because you've probably been in the most, what, intense uh, 18 months of your working history to date. Yeah. Sweet Green has been a, a huge, <laughs> I, you know, I know, I know that you have the founder, founder yeah. of Sweet Green here. Jonathan's wonderful. But the ability to always have a healthy, delicious uh, salad at work. We, we use a service called Stadium that delivers um, lunches to the office. And having that has been a reliable option for me. And it's been awesome. I totally am with you. So you you were saying you don't always eat breakfast, but you eat lunch. Yes. Uh, I also don't eat breakfast, <laughs> um, but that's because I've always found when you like eat, you get a little tired, and I was I just don't have time to be anything but like totally energized. Yeah. So walk us through. So when it's a Sunday night, okay, and you're looking at your week, and you are feeling really energized and you're excited, what type of meeting is on your calendar in the week? It's often interviewing a, a candidate who I know I want to, to land and who I know is going to change the trajectory of the company and who I'm going to learn a ton from, that energizes me. I'm also very energized by talking to customers and talking to uh, people who know about, you know, are intimately familiar with the problems that they experience. And I get excited by how they're going to shift and change my worldview and uh, inform our future product roadmap. Those are all, uh, that learning is, I, I find, highly energizing. That's wonderful. Um, so now let's step back. So you, um, clearly, you've been an entrepreneur before, so this isn't your first rodeo, but we, we all know it's so nice to have people like your kind of own professional board or your own mentors and advisors. Who do you have around you right now to help you get advice from, and what are they doing to help you? Well, Henrik and Ryan, who are the first angel investors, um, they've been tremendous as sounding boards. Uh, but Morton, my co-founder, we're in the trenches together. And being able to have those really passionate, vigorous uh, debates and you know have a meeting of minds, that has been a critical piece of this. So I, I've been very fortunate to have um, those people in, in a community of founders, largely through Y Combinator, that have been able to assist me through good times and bad. That's awesome. So another quick question here. So we all talk about the future of work and how work's evolving just in general. If you had to make some predictions, and they can be big, small, anything, if you think 10 years out, what is like? what does work look like for America? I love the question. And 
I I like to think about what's not going to change about work, right? Because that that oftentimes is a great way to anchor. I love that. Uh, I love that. The way that we think about the world. And what's not going to change is people aren't going to want it to be harder to build a great workplace environment. People aren't going to want to wait longer to receive products in the office. Um, and what's also not going to change is how quickly the tools we use change. Right. So if you ask me, how are we going to work in 10 years? The, the honest truth is I don't know. When you think about 10 years ago, we lived in a world where everyone was on a desktop computer. So offices designed their workplace environments with the desktop computer and printers and scanners, you know, in mind. And all physically uh, like wired to a wall also. Exactly. Yeah. So what's very clear to me about the future of work and how it's going to look in 10 years is that it's going to be changing a lot faster than it has been and that we need to find ways to make it easy to be flexible and to flexibly create great workplace environment. And that's what we're trying to do. I I love it. I, I will also add, I don't think that it will ever change that people want to find real meaning in what they do when they show up at uh, the office or work from wherever they're working. People will really care that um, they're rowing for a reason. Okay, so last big question before our fire round here. Um, the best founders always pay it forward. What advice would you give a brand new founder? So if I, Alexa, was going to go start something for the first time, what would you tell me? I, I find myself thinking a lot about uh, a book I read a few years ago called Heart Smarts, Guts, and Luck. And it's a very simple book, but it describes this premise where uh, in starting of a company and building a business up, you need different dimensions of heart, smarts, guts, and luck at different stages of the business. And in the, the two companies that I've, I've helped start, I, I've realized that in the earliest stages, it's really about that heart and guts. And it's about that, you know, building that conviction and having the passion for what you're doing. And that's what's going to help you overcome all of the obstacles to get a business off the ground. But then there's also a turning point where you need to start introducing the smarts and, uh, and and thinking about things in a data-driven and evidence-based way. And that's been an incredibly helpful framework for me. I think that it would behoove entrepreneurs to uh, have in mind that on, in the earliest stages, it is about heart and guts, and that at some point you do need to kind of modulate appropriately to the stage of the business and start introducing process and data, but at the right time. I've never heard somebody um, talk through that, and I love it. It, it is all hearts and guts early. Yeah. Um, and then it's the smarts, and then you need a little bit of luck. Exactly. Because uh, everything is about a bit of timing. That's wonderful. Um, okay, so quick fire round. Uh, what's your biggest pinch me moment so far at Room? What was the moment or day where you were like, I can't believe that just happened? Wow. <laughs> In December of last year, I guess of December 2018, so just six months ago, we visited this beautiful office in Soho. It was 6,600 square feet, and we were, you know, 12, 15 people at the time. And we thought to ourselves, wow, this is an amazing office. It would be great for us. It would be perfect for us. And it felt like a little bit of a stretch, but, you know, we said, things are going well. Let's just do it. Let's sign the lease. And uh, because of the way that, you know, corporate real estate operates, it took us four months to move in and go through demolition and construction and putting our office together. And we moved in in April and it ended up being this beautiful office that we 
you know, it, there was definitely a pinch me moment there where uh, we started putting into place a lot of the theories that we have about how great workplace environment looks like. And it's in the office and it's beautiful. There's tons of greens in there. There's uh, a room that's f- purely designed for focus. There's a coffee shop environment where people who uh, get energy from social environments can do work. And that was amazing. And what's kind of crazy to me now is that just two or three months after moving in, we're starting to outgrow the space. But there's there's this physical sensation when you walk into an office and you say, wow, like the business that we have built justifies this office. And that, you know, was definitely a rewarding and uh, moment. Again, not surprising that you started a company like Room because you care so much about the physical space that you're in. Yeah. Um, you're so well-wired well to run the <laughs> business that you're running. Okay, so when you're hiring somebody, and clearly just, again, from uh, being with you in person, it's so clear how much you care about culture and the fabric of what you're building and being so mindful of it. What is the interview question that you feel like gets to the core of a person that you're spending time with where you can really see who they are and better figure out if they're a good fit? So how, how do you think if you got one interview question and you had to interview me, what would it be? It's hard to say one one question, honestly, and I'll give you a non-answer, which is I'm looking I'm looking for consistency when I interview people, and it's consistency in how they what they find drives them, and examples of how that drive and that passion is woven into the fabric of their story. And if I don't see consistency, then I just find myself unconvinced. That's a really good answer. I haven't heard anybody say that one, but that's wonderful. It's a little bit of uh, self-awareness also, which is do they know who they are? Are they consistent in how they think about things? Okay, so uh, other than Room, what's one startup we should all know about? I'm fascinated by the company Humu, which is uh, founded by Laszlo Bach. He was the former SVP of People Operations at Google. He, wor- he wrote this book called Work Rules that uh, is kind of founded this movement of people operations and shifting away from thinking about HR as this other function that just deals with HR stuff. His company is incredibly fascinating. I think there's so much to be done in terms of unleashing human potential, even within companies today, without crazy changes. So HR, people operations, tech is is very interesting to me. I will say that a big kind of shift for me as an entrepreneur and a founder a few years in was when you begin to realize that HR isn't a function that like helps and fixes problems. HR is actually a strategic function that drives the business. And that shift from being like HR is the place where issues get resolved, it's actually like HR drives the strategy, which is whatever you need to accomplish if you have the right people and they're motivated and unlocked in the right way with the right culture, you execute. I like to tell people that, you know, that business strategy is HR strategy and HR strategy (laughs) is business strategy. strategy. Um, Kelly Lydon, an amazing VP of HR who I worked with, literally said to me, I run a strategic function, it's HR. And uh, that is the strategy of the business. And it really, again, was a a, a big learning moment uh, for me as a young entrepreneur. Okay, so uh, last question. Um, If there is one thing that gets you out of bed in the morning, what is it? One thing. (laughs) Um, it's it's it has to be people right it's the people that that you surround yourself with and the people you spend your time with because that there's there's really nothing else at the end of the day 
Brian, it has been such a joy to get to spend time with you. Um, what you are building at Room is clearly going to reshape uh, hundreds of thousands of offices, and that's pretty special. Thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody, if you want to learn more about Room or buy a room, uh, head to www.getroom.com and join us for next week's Inks the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Thank you so much, Brian, for coming today. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. You can subscribe to Inks the Founders Project with Alexa Montobel wherever your podcasts are offered.